Hello, and welcome to Teacher Tales, a podcast from the spirit of teaching. This is your host, Linda Markley, and I invite you to join me and my guests as we get curious, explore, discover, and learn more about what is really at the heart of teaching. In each episode, we will hear the story of a teacher, what called them to teach, what are their greatest joys and challenges in teaching, what inspires them, and what are their hopes, dreams, and vision for the education of children. We will learn more about the greatest lessons they have taught and also the greatest lessons they have learned. No checklists, no standards, no reports, no paperwork, and no data. Just stories from their hearts to our hearts on a journey to celebrate what really matters in the true spirit of teaching. Welcome everyone. Today my guest on Teacher Tales is Andrea. And Andrea, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, thank you very much, Linda. This is such an honor. I um, am educated from California and moved to Florida with the space program and my husband. And since I've been here, my career over 30 years, I have used most of my experiences from California education, but added a few in the area of a master's in elementary education. So I initially started out as a high school teacher wanting to teach social studies and didn't realize that most of the departments that I went to were male dominated at the time. And if you remember, it's kind of functional to be part of a group and to be able to either do what they do, which is teach or coach. So that didn't work for me as well as for other people. So I kind of broadened out and I took long-term suppositions and then Realistically, I started at the middle school level, so that kind of was not my goal, but in some retrospect, it was perfect for me because the kids were more agreeable, the subject material was more educable, and there was more fun at that level. And so I started off in a language arts social studies program, so I got to combine the love of learning and reading with what I loved history and the kids enjoyed that. And then we changed again. So I came back to Florida and started with my family and went into elementary ed. So I think when you start to grow as a teacher and I knew that I didn't have to be a social studies history teacher for life, it turns out that when I went to elementary school, it was a pretty good fit. And I pretty much started at sixth grade and stayed there for almost 18 years. And then I taught fifth grade for over five and then fourth grade for one and a half and then third grade for a short term. And then of course, some kinks came in the road and a wonderful friend of mine who had sort of mentored me and had been a sixth grade teacher was the librarian at the school uh, where I had been for many years. And she said, I'm kind of sick and I'm going to need some help. And so I started helping her and I guess she thought, perfect. So go take the test and you can be a librarian. (laughs) And back in those days, it was always, I can take the test. Okay, let's see if I can pass the test. (laughs) And I did, which is not surprising because my mom had been in a library for 
again over 18, 20 years. And I'd helped her many, many afternoons after school and during the summer. And inventory was not my friend, but it was still a good way to touch every book and know where things were. So long story short, I went in the library and ended up there six years. And from that experience in the library, I learned to be very flexible and to manage lots of different student grade levels, which I never thought I'd be a primary person. So then I um, kind of went back in the classroom for the last two and a half years of my career and retired and thought, wow, this is great. And then it wasn't so that it was boring or anything, but I just I didn't know if I was really done. And then I did a long-term subposition in third. And then the library came up this year during COVID. And I said, I think I can. And like the little engine, I was like running constantly, learning new skills and this computer and Zoom and some of the e-learners that I worked with. It was a whole new ball game. So teaching has totally come around to a a force that is within you, but it has to be something you need to be ready for. And I had to do a lot of um, out of school learning. <laughs> so let me tell you, those sixth graders taught me a whole lot. <laughs> but that's it in a nutshell. Well, I think what I've heard a lot from teachers is we're lifelong learners. And so right. we do need to be challenged. We do need to keep growing and learning. Sometimes it's painful, uh, but sometimes our greatest growth comes from those greatest growing. Right. So, right. So let me, let me ask you you a little bit about the uh, librarian media specialist thing. And so my qualifications were as a teacher first, I had done the um, secondary is directional, whatever support for my credential in California. So my internship was at the high school level. I had no experience with younger kids. Then when I came here and and started working with younger students, I got my elementary ed certification, which allowed me to work with first to sixth graders. Well, believe it or not, media is kindergarten to 12. So the certification requirements are totally different. And I took two courses, one in um, how a library should be set up and your ideas about what it is that you do for a school, which is a community. And then the second course was about cataloging, how books get on shelves and the whole Dewey Decimal thing. It was really quite um, a learning experience. And then of all things, taking the test just practicing knowing what some of the questions were and understanding a little more about the library at the high school level because I'd worked there with my mom. The whole process of teaching is teaching. And so a good friend of mine, the former librarian said, love the books and take care of those kids. You know, make sure that there's safety first in the library because there's a lot of things they can get in trouble with and then learn what books the kids would really enjoy and or read to them out loud, which was always a joy. And then processing the books into their hands and getting them back. So there's where the librarian changes from the teacher of the media specialist. So the media specialist, sure, I could have run the library every day showing someone else reading online, storybook online, lots of 
artists, actors, people doing their job for education and helping us out. And then the teachers were doing the same thing once they saw what I was doing or because they knew. And then you're sharing books online and then there are questions that follow and there's lots of interaction going on. It's a wonderful process and it can all be taught on a big screen, which means there's no books in kids' hands. So I kept trying to promote that and checking out books and getting them back. And that's where the librarian's job is after school hours. There's no time during the day. You shouldn't be spending your time in the stacks in the back when you have 20 some little kids running around doing whatever they do. And the creativity part of the library is so amazing because you can make your own choices. The curriculum has standards. We should have been teaching how to find a book like the Dewey Decimal System and Relatively speaking, just going online and finding a book just by knowing the title or the author, that kind of criteria should be taught in every classroom. So the library has changed, and I'm not quite sure that books will ever be outdated, but as you see in movies and even some of the wonderful new digital movies showing libraries with the walls of books going up and the the um, ladder that goes across and then finding you know like the wonderful last rendition of some story it's like a treasure and you just don't want to see it go away but I do know that most elementary librarians are what we call activity teachers teaching classes all day on the wheel and then they have duties cafeteria and then after school duty, watching kids cross over to go home. Wow. You know, and that took a chunk of time on my schedule that wasn't in the library putting books on the shelf. So normal teachers know that you work outside of school hours. That's a professional. But the librarian, I can't take my job home with me. And I could do research and references and read, but I can't put the books on the shelf from home. So that was frustrating. And I think that that's where... They have talked about closing libraries. And in the past, that's a horrible idea. I think even the Romans and Greeks talked about how a civilization is doomed without that sense of a library community. But you realize that it's, it's a facility. It's just a place. It's not the thought that the library would go away. It's just you're wondering what they're gonna use the space for because they're very creative. And I think during state testing, most libraries are used for accommodations, kids that need extra time, resources that um, they can isolate and keep a child from the actual groups that are tested at one time. So believe it or not, that's a flexible position, which I never was trained for all that, but you are trained to test now. So almost every teacher has that responsibility. Mm -hmm. Those are all great points about the library and they are talking about cutting funding and like, what, what's the point of a library? Like kids can go online and find the information, but I can tell you from volunteering in my daughter's class and seeing even high school kids, but, but the elementary kids, you know, she had little places and I sewed pillows for her and beanbag, you know, beanbag chairs for kids to curl up with a physical book 
and just have a little downtime or a break during the day. Kids still love to do that. It's a human need. It's a human thing. And, um, and so I think that, you know, taking that away from kids and having it as the center of the community of the school where kids can gather, where the teachers can go and have an ally, have a resource, have a friend who's gonna support them, who's gonna guide them, who's going to mentor them. So I would like to talk about mentoring next. You like that little (laughs) segue? Because you were my daughter's first mentor as a first- I was blessed. (laughs) And so, you know, if, and we are at, an, a, you know, another end of the, you know, the, the range of, you yeah. know, where we are in our careers and everything. And I love that you said that you had the younger librarian and she became the mentor and you became the mentee. And I think we need to always be flexible and open to that. But let's talk about you as a mentor. And this was many years ago. And my daughter being a first year teacher. And what, you know, a lot of teachers now don't want to take on student teachers because they're overwhelmed already. Uh, But I think they need to become more overwhelmed with the responsibility and the feeling of, I need to pass this on. I need to help the younger generation. You know, I need to pay it forward. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, I guess that's going back to the history of being a child of a teacher. (laughs) Although he worked in a juvenile justice program, a lockdown rule. So I don't think I ever wanted to follow that path, but I did actually start by working with kids that had been incarcerated who couldn't read. So tutoring for reading as a volunteer and a teacher to be, I learned so much and Just having that gift of time with one-on-one with a child who was still struggling so much at the high school level and getting in trouble with the law. So what does that tell you? You know, when you hear teachers talking about Johnny, Susie, whoever, who's got a problem in the classroom and the offhand comments that have turned into research based on a third grader's ability to read, if they're not on grade level, then they're building beds for them in places that will support them. And it's not hospitals. So we're talking some of these kids that are from very difficult situations and I never thought that I was better. I knew what my dad did and I knew how he helped those kids. So I started teaching and I started realizing that the kids in my classroom could be future teachers. And then I would have them do student teaching in my classroom right away with sixth grade and then peer teaching and then role modeling, you know, and asking those kids who always sort of had it. And I I don't know that I was probably one of those kids that the teacher would put over by Johnny or Susie. And I should say Juan or Maria, because in California, my classrooms were very integrated. Even back then, when I was a student and I was sitting next to a Spanish-speaking child helping them. So that mentoring, that thinking process was ingrained from the time I started school and helping others. And then when I decided to take what they call the clinical educator training, CET, it was, I don't know how many hours, 60 hours, and we got this little certificate. Woo, yippee. And then I realized this is kind of cool because 
the people who need you and want you, they kind of match you together. But the bottom line is that when they start to realize that these students who want to be teachers have never done what I did, they didn't get to volunteer, they didn't work with students one-on-one. All those experiences from my childhood were partly geared towards knowing I wanted to be a teacher. Well, some people become a teacher because they don't want to do anything else or because their parents say, this is your last chance. You know, you're going to have to get a degree, get something. And I've heard that before and I went, and so if you can't do anything else, you become a teacher. That doesn't seem a requirement that I thought was up there on the list. But when I started getting interns, um, I also recognized what a wonderful program UCF had for the mentor teacher to gain a certificate. I hope you knew what those were, a participation, which allowed me to take six credit hours for up to two years for free. And that became a bonus, you know, really hundreds of dollars in my pocket and helped pay for my master's degree. So there we were with maybe 10 certified teachers to help other teachers. And our school became kind of a, a pilot school where a lot of we a lot of students wanted to be at our school to intern because they found us, I don't want to say accommodating or um, enlightening. I thought maybe I was kind of helpful that way. But I was also capable of stepping back. And there were some people who were back then wanting to control and tell the student teacher what to do and only doing copies and weird stuff that I never thought was part of educating teachers. So that changed. And after about five years of getting some really wonderful um, future teachers, a couple of them that are wonderful in Brevard County, I know for sure doing well. Several were actually as old as I was, one was a retired army guy or air force guy, sorry, Tim. And one was a carpenter construction person who thought, you know, I can build houses, but I really would like to build kids' minds. And he came and did his internship with me and created this wonderful planner box and all this stuff with the kids, such a hands-on experienced person, great for science, math, and language arts he loved to. So here's where the educated learn from the other educated and the mentoring really became collaboration. So I have to admit that that was where my skill set was more letting go and letting them learn from mistakes and being there to encourage them and support them along the way. And I did have a couple that had problems with the paperwork and life issues. So we had to support those. And that's where the young person is so capable, but they are so torn between being young and having work and all these other experiences where the middle-aged intern really dug in and so many found their voices, which I encourage them always to just be you. And if you're entertaining or have that funny little voice that comes out of you once in a while, you know, the kids loved it. And then I learned all their skills. And one of them was a former, former flight attendant from Delta who did go back, by the way, to Delta where they called her back. 
And she was hysterical. I mean, if you've been on a plane, I know you have many times and you've heard the flight attendants tell you how to sit, what to do. She used her arms, she used her voice, she used her eyes. All those skills can't be taught, but she already had her stick and she used to say her makeup was her armor. I love that. And she would just get up in front of the class and her lessons, her boards, her creativity were so there. What wasn't was taking the papers home grading and putting them into the computer and having her report cards ready on time. So some of the things I was pretty good at, <laughs> some of those things I would just say, give me those papers, let me put the data in, you know, you, you want to get things done. And because of their short time with you, it's less than four months, I think, for a senior intern. Juniors are different. And then I think at one point UCF was using volunteer hours for their courses. And I taught intro to diversity and intro to adolescent development. Probably not the best teacher because <laughs> reading about all those people's philosophies, that taught me a lot. Anyway, but <clears throat> all of those courses had a requirement for 15 hours of volunteering in a classroom. So to just let those people in the door, that was exciting for them. And to not just be copying papers or, you know, something office oriented, I like them to bring their skills and, and their training and their background and experiences to the classroom to actually teach, to hear their voice and to experience what the kids would do and to see the light in the children's faces when they would do some sort of extra experiment or with Laura, it was always art projects and finished projects that took hours sometimes. And I remember after school gluing and doing all the fun little things and thinking, I never was trained for all this. She had a lot more art training, <laughs> but I learned from her, you know, there's so many fun things to do, but sometimes you don't finish them with the kids. You do that with them if you can, and then you support them if you can. And just getting things done as an intern, that feeling of accomplishment and then getting a job. And then most of my interns kept in touch with me. I've heard from several and some of them left the careers. And I have one right now who's contemplating leaving. So it's hard, you know, to support their needs as humans and future parents, young people, and then older ones who maybe want to retire. So at this point, as I've retired and gone back in and come back out and thought, when is your voice quiet? There's that pause. Yeah. And sometimes you just have to laugh and sometimes you cry and you think, I'm not done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's the too hard of a teacher. I mean, dedicated to children. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now is for the teachers exactly. to get out there because they're not just teaching the standards. They're not just people checking off boxes on a checklist. Yes. We're human beings uh, with hearts, trying to share our hearts with the world and trying to open up the hearts of children. Well, well those scripted programs, and I know that people are fighting those and not seeing the progress that they thought. Well, they see the administration part of it when a child moves from one school to another. Mm -hmm continuity and flow but they don't understand the human dynamics and I can tell you working with 
I don't know, what was I working with? 45, 50 teachers at the last elementary school. Wow, there's a huge difference. And yes, maybe a script does help those teachers who are unsure how to present material, but no one should be afraid of reading out loud. And you said it, and we talked about it before, thinking you always have a book. You always have something to share. It's in your bag of tricks, and you don't have to be prepared. It's kind of like a performance and you just go with the flow because if you have a fire drill or you have something that's happened during the day that causes the kids to get off track you need to wrap it in and and still have that sense of community and I think Laura and several other of my mentors realized it wasn't so much what you taught it's who you are and that comes out and your voice says to them, it's going to be okay. And I remember um, after 9-11, we sat in that hallway for two and a half hours. I don't know where you were, but those little kids, we were reading quietly. We were discussing things. It wasn't maybe the teachable moment, but it was so human and so close. And I'll never forget the people that were in that hallway and the kids that were in that hallway were close and they understood we were safe. And there was no question that administration had told us what to do. But within that telling us what to do, grabbing a book and sitting there and, and holding on for whatever content time was available. So I think teaching from bell to bell was a concept that I was trained in for high school. And I know you know bell activities and warm-ups and keeping the kids busy. I just always thought idle hands, idle minds. And if their, their brains weren't engaged and their hands weren't doing something or their eyes, then I'd lost them. And I know we all have kids that walk in and need a snack or a break or a nap. And sometimes that's what you need to do also. Mm -hmm. I think as a mentor, I had to really understand where my student teachers were coming from and then just letting go and then having some faith that they were teaching my kids. And once in a while, I'd be like, can I take over that lesson? Because <laughs> we need to have some closure because that's maybe on a standardized test. Good gosh. You know, we were so convinced that everybody was going to do fine. And then my first couple of years, I don't know, I didn't have a gifted class. I did really well. And then my last year as a sixth grade teacher at a little school, I had two boys score perfectly on the math test. Well, you know what I learned? Hmm. Okay, when you have mentors and the kids are going faster than that person is able to wrap up the lesson, we started having computers in the classroom and I let them do Khan Academy. Well, who's the mentor there? You know, there's where Khan Academy is teaching kids one-on-one -on -one in a computer setting almost the way I was taught, very didactic, slow, methodical, practice, repeat, practice, repeat. And I don't see a lot of that being done. I don't care how scripted the lesson is. Unless you repeat it, it's not learned. I think your point about personality, though, and voice in the classroom, that's what they're trying to take away. With the script, they're trying to have a, almost like a, um, uh, alternate reality or, you know, that whole AI, like it can, we can have a computer do that. And so we're going to have the teacher just read this script. And that's not how kids learn. And that's not the way teaching should be. It not should be, no, it shouldn't. I mean, if you take the word personality and you put, you take person out of it, 
it, you have all of these other related words like personable, you know, and personalize. And it's, it's got to be personal for the teacher and for the student. And there's got to be that, you know, connection. So. Right. And I think that connection and community, when I was working on my national boards, and I think you did them too, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, that sense of community was one of my highest scores. And I mean, basically, you're kind of telling what you do. So it's no longer where I learned or where I went to school or who was my boss. It was what you do. And you can't fake that. And that to me is always the question of how many kids would say that I walked into school and just faked it? Like I knew what I was teaching. You can't, you know, eventually you start to crumble because you realize the kids are smart and they're going to ask some really good questions. And I knew if I didn't know it, I could go find an answer. And I was honest about that. Yeah. So I don't have much to say about the scripted curriculum, but in human sexuality, that was when I just wanted to know what they wanted me to say, because <laughs> then you show the video and then they ask these questions and then you're like, okay, maybe we should go to recess. <laughs> to develop curriculum was maybe another goal of mine to be a curriculum specialist and that position just seemed so perfect for people who were creative like Laura and wanting to help other teachers and then all that other stuff coming together and then they took that away so but organization and some of the tactics in the classroom to get the kids to do things centers those are, are typical for most classrooms, but I don't see them being used as much anymore. So another theory or strategy or whatever you want to call it from education world that kind of goes cyclical. And I kind of wish, even though the themes were dominating sometimes, too much driven, I like the idea of kind of connecting all subject material. So if you were teaching math and it could be part of a unit of social studies too, you might talk about conversions if you're traveling or, you know, things like that. So back to that role that you are to be creative and, and personable and not worry so much about that curriculum base, which everybody knows that you sit in front of a teacher forever. Mm -hmm. Am I on the right page at the right time and teaching it the same exact way as the person in the classroom next to me? Exactly. It's just a crime in education now. It, it really is. is. And then all the testing that's involved to follow up, to see that you've done that criteria, which there's so many more things that are valuable in the classroom to teach. Well, I liked weekly exams, especially spelling and social studies. And just, I always said dates, facts, and dead people, because, you know, they're everywhere. <laughs> this would be like, seriously? I go, yeah, go visit a few, you know, museums <laughs> or cemeteries, and you'll find interesting facts, dates names, some no names. But the weird thing is that that whole thing about testing and that came in our careers about 10 years in. And then that's when the creativity and the small groups and the requirements for the tests that judged you, evaluated you against your peers. Mm -hmm. That's kind of sad because we 
all don't get the same kids. So we're not comparing apples and apples. Let's give this magical test that criteria-wise tells us where they're at and then they fail. That's mm -hmm. really think, wow, whoever made that test up, whether the questions were valid and there's the, the total theory about you weren't in my classroom this year teaching. So maybe I didn't teach that concept. And if 40 or 50%, maybe higher, don't score on that one, that, that question isn't valid. That question isn't related to what I taught or you need to regroup and reteach. So I've learned a lot from the old school to the new school. <laughs> yes, always keep learning. That's what's That's important. Right. Okay, so teaching is um, challenging. It is that every day. <laughs> what I want others to know about teaching and what's important for kids is to always be prepared, scouts rule, <laughs> to have a backup plan, number three, and then to always have a book. Because if you have a book, you don't need a plan. Very good. My greatest hope for all children is? To wander, <laughs> to find that sense of knowledge and learning. And my greatest wish for the profession is? Um, I don't think a paycheck is going to make people want to do our job more, but to find that empathy in the administration's ability to search for people who really want to do well and to be there for kids. And the last one, the true heart of a teacher feels. Gosh, here I'm crying again. Stronger when we're together. And that's what we're trying to do here. I hope we can spread all of these stories and yours is a very touching and, and inspirational one. And I hope everyone shares it with other teachers that are, are struggling and need that little bit of um, love and inspiration and personality to be who yes. they are. And that's go ahead and cry about it. I can't tell you how many times I ended up um, Nothing But the Truth by Avi. And I read it probably four or five years in sixth grade. And I cried every time. And I mean, there would be a kid that goes, can I finish reading Mrs. Rice? And I'd be like, you're going to have to do this for me. <laughs> yeah. And it was wonderful. And I, I think that's where my voice didn't falter because I would try to choke out the words. But then they picked it up. It's like the strength of a child that knows I can do that. That's priceless. It is, it is. We're giving them a voice through our voice. That's, and some of them were not the ones that you would have said, the best readers get to read aloud. Remember that? Mm -hmm. the one, that one that doesn't want to read because they never will. Some of those kids started to read. Whether it's a play or an active comment, they just, they had to find their voice and feel that nobody was going to make fun of them. And I think that competition and some of that anxiety goes away when they have that sense of community and have fun. And then, of course, there's always recess. So 
we have to talk to him. <laughs> Let's go to recess. We'll chat outside. So yes. huge difference being in Florida and having um, an open door, so to speak. Well, thank you. You're welcome. 